Uh, we've been dealing with kind of the back end of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul exhorted the betrothed to really he's just kind of encouraging them to remain single in light of their present distress. And he kind of goes and unpacks a bunch of really, really good reasons for singleness. Um, and we have been calling this section Apostolic Advice to the Betrothed because I think that title kind of captures what's going on here. I think that's how the back end of chapter 7 should be seen. Paul, he gives four points of apostolic advice to the betrothed Christians in the Corinthian church. They're not imperatives or commands. It's really advice. It makes sense. It's good stuff. It's still authoritative because he's an apostle, but he is, he is not saying through this whole text that, you know, everybody should remain single and marriage is a bad thing. He's not saying that at all. So it is more of an advice kind of thing, but it's still good. It's still very solid, but don't think of it in terms of imperatives because I think that's how some interpret this chapter and, and that becomes a real mess. And what I find to be funny is the guys that usually really force singleness down people's throats are married guys. <laughs> that's never made any sense to me. So at least, at least Paul is a single guy who could speak from single experience, right? Uh, but in any case, there's really four main points in this tail end section of chapter 7. We've already covered the first two. On uh, the fifth, we looked at how marriage can increase distress during distressing times. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 28a. And we'll get into that. There's an entire sermon on it. Um, and then on the 12th, last Sunday, we looked at how marriage can negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and to the Lord's work. And that was 1 Corinthians 7, 28b to 35. Again, I'm not going to get into that. There was a whole sermon devoted to that. You guys can always go back and listen if you missed it. Um, something interesting that I kind of realized more so in this last week of sermon prep, that because of the way the Greek is written and, and because of the Greek wording, um, there are translational differences in various English translations of all of chapter 7, but in particular this section. Like, if you read the NASB, it gives a different idea of, it's, it's the truth is the truth is the truth. Okay, so there's not a difference in truth, but in whom Paul may have been writing to. And I kind of knew that when we first crossed over in chapter 7, because it's alluded to in some of the commentaries, but it becomes far more apparent in, in this next section here. So there are translational differences in like the ESV versus maybe the NASB. The renderings are a little bit different of, of this whole section, verses 25 to 40. Uh, for instance, like the ESV presents Paul's apostolic advice to betrothed couples. And, and that would also be true of the NIV and other more recent translation. So it seems like Paul is saying the same truths to everyone, but really who he's addressing here, according to the ESV, is betrothed couples or engaged couples. Whereas the NASB kind of has it a little bit differently. And, and it, it, it says or shows or implies that, that Paul was actually writing to the fathers of virgin daughters of marriageable age. So it's not the truth where there's variation, but it's in whom or to whom Paul may have been writing to. So that's where the area of debate is. And what's interesting is that it's really nearly impossible, probably if not nearly impossible, to determine which translation best or perfectly captures Paul's intended audience. It's just the way it's worded. It's really, really hard to figure out. It's kind of ambiguous in terms of is it going right to these Fathers? Is it going right to these male fiancés? Who is it headed out to? And like I said, this has absolutely no impact on Paul's actual teachings. It has no impact on the doctrinal value or doctrines here. The truth is the truth is the truth, no matter who it's aimed at. Amen? It doesn't matter. Who it's aimed at, I think, is relevant and matters because that's part of the context. But that's a, a, that would be a less concerning thing as opposed to like if the NASB just contradicted the ESV or vice versa and that is not what's happening here. In recent years, biblical scholars have really shifted away from the NASB rendering to the ESV 
because they now believe that the betrothed is who Paul has been talking to in the entire chapter. It, the whole context and the wording and everything seems to really be aimed at engaged couples. So the consensus and higher majority of good, sound theologians and scholars have moved toward an ESV rendering, which tells us that the NASB rendering was held superior for a long time. The ESV says Paul is essentially speaking to the betrothed. That is the consensus view of most scholars now. And I think that that view, according to our own study and work in the chapter, seems to fit better than the idea of fathers of virgin daughters of marriageable age. The subject matter seems to all be aimed at engaged couples. And then when you think of the context of all of these things playing out and how it was far less sensible in this day to get married with all the persecution and everything, I mean, it makes sense that he's talking to engaged, not a group of dads. Um, but I think what we're actually seeing play out in this text, especially our text, is that he's talking to both. I think that's a safe place to be for us because I think he's not just talking to betrothed. He's also talking to the parents of the betrothed or he's talking to the parents of virgin daughters who are not aiming to get married or anything. So I think that Paul is really speaking to both sets of people in this church. I think that's probably the best way to handle 36 through 40. So that's what we want to have as a mindset. And, and that will help to make sense of this introduction I'm going to give you. By way of introduction, in Jewish culture, parents, and particularly the fathers, had a very, very dominant role in deciding who their parents would marry. Okay, so this wasn't just a matter of two people meeting, both loving Jesus, wanting to get married. We're talking parents, especially dads, had a major role in this, often in arrangement far before these kids could even think for themselves, even while their children were, were babies. And so this is a cultural thing then. It was predominant. It was everywhere, which now makes sense for Paul to be writing to these fathers as well. But in Jewish culture in particular, all cultures, but in Jewish culture in particular, fathers had a, a real dominant role in who their kids would marry. And the same general rule prevailed in other ancient societies, including that of Rome. Um, arranged marriage was very, very popular in the Roman Empire. Now, some historians go as far as to credit Rome's decline in part to the weakening of the family caused by the loss of parental control in arranging marriages. Like some theologians say, or some historians say that one of the, you know, part of the decline of Rome was when parents got less involved with who their kids were marrying. And then they were just marrying whoever, whomever, and then that, that led to all sort of familial troubles and relational troubles and then eroded, like, top scale eroded down the empire and all that. And I would say, well, that might have been part of it, but I don't think so. I think Rome had enough issues on its own. But they will credit the decline of Rome to parents not having the same pull in arranged marriages. In Paul's day, the arranged marriage especially for young people, was absolutely normative. Like today we think of that in American society, and that's just the furthest thing in the world. We hear about it maybe in parts of India stuff. We say, wow. But back in this day, what was abnormal was for two people to choose each other and get married without the parents involved. That's the cultural climate that this is written in. And what you had was in the Corinthian church, there were fathers that had arranged marriages for their children. Plain and simple. And, and the, the problem seems to be that by the time those children came of age, they really didn't want to do what their fathers wanted them to do. They may not have been interested in marrying Betty Sue or whatever. It's just like, look, look, you were chosen for this since birth, and now you have to follow through with it. And some of these kids that are now young adults are saying, I, I don't want to do it, man. So they resisted tying the knot, and that created friction. And there were also fathers that had placed, and this was normal too, by the way, there were also fathers who had placed their children, especially their virgin daughters, under an oath that required lifelong singleness, lifelong celibacy. So daughter's born, she's a tadpole, she's tiny, she's not even an ankle biter yet, 
and I have chosen to make a vow to God for you that you are going to be single and celibate. It's going to be like a Nazarite vow situation like from the Old Testament. That's what you'll be. And of course, now when these young virgin daughters started to come of age, went through puberty, started thinking about men, maybe had a little bit of that burning passion, dad saying, no, you have to be single and celibate. That was playing out. Strict adherence to these long-held religious traditions created another quandary in the Corinthian church, like as if this church needs another quandary. It was jam-packed with trouble. And now we've got this to deal with now. Now we have dads trying to control the marital outcome of their children, whether it be through arrangement or forced celibacy. And this, of course, the quandary. What's the quandary? It puts parents at odds with their children and children at odds with their parents. And, of course, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that you have to honor your parents, which means in this context that I guess I have to follow through with whatever my dad tells me to do. So now you've got more disunity, more dissension, more drama in a church that is days of our lives. It is a soap opera in this place. And what you have is these really two groups of fathers, right? You've got the guys who are kind of over the arrangement idea. You've got the others who are dealing with the, the Nazarite vow kind of thing, the celibacy and singleness. You've got these two groups of fathers who are essentially worried about breaking these traditions because they're long held. And they thought that if we break these things, if I let my children out of this vow or if I break off the arrangement or the betrothment, or whatever, then they think it's a grievous sin because that's what happens with traditions. You get traditions, you get traditional about things, you put them at the same level as scripture and then you feel like if you violate the tradition you have just committed maybe the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. And they're worried about this and they're like, man, I, we don't know what to do. Our kids are opposing us, but this is what our culture does. And so what did they do? They inquired about the matter like, is arrangement, I, I really feel like in my soul it's something we're supposed to be doing. We've done it all along. Or the Nazarite vow, they're sending to Paul questions. Are these things that we should be doing? Because we are under the conviction that we should be doing them. So this is among all of the questions that were sent to Paul in that, in that letter that he got. Remember chapter 7, verses 1? The letter, they're asking these questions. What should we be doing about this? And I think that Paul has already answered their questions very adequately up to this point. I really do. I mean, he's talked about marriage and it's not a sin to get married, right? I mean, this is what he's been talking about. So I think that he's answered their questions rather indirectly in the previous sections, obviously. But now Paul is going to tackle them head on. Now he's just going to focus on that, those questions and those subjects and answer them pretty clearly rather than threading it through all his other teaching, hoping that maybe the Corinthians would get the idea, and Paul knew that the Corinthians would not get the idea. They were adventures in missing the point. So he is going to answer this straight on. But what I find to be truly amazing in this next section, it's that he doesn't direct his response to the fathers who wrote out the questions and sent them to him. I mean, they asked the question, so you would think that Paul would, okay, fathers, okay, dads, let's, let's, let me deal with the dads now, but that's not who he addresses in the next section. He addresses the betrothed. He goes right to the ones who either want to get married, he goes right to the singles who are thinking about, well, I really don't know if I'm called to singleness and celibacy or to those who are getting married and maybe don't want to follow through with that. This is who he writes to. He doesn't write to the dads. He aims his answers at the betrothed primarily. Why is that? What, are you asking yourself why would he do that? They weren't the ones asking the question. This, this is the question that comes to my investigative mind. Why does he do that? I think it's because, and it's only, it's only speculation. We don't know exactly why, but I think it has to do with the fact that Paul understood that God gives the gifts of singleness and marriage to individuals directly, not to their parents for distribution. That is what's biblically normative, not traditions and not arranged marriage. This is what happens when you think that your tradition is at the same level 
of Scripture and now you dogmatically live these things out. And Paul is saying, you're dogmatically living these things out. I'm not even going to address the fathers on this. I'm going to the ones who are going to have to make decisions here on whether they get married or not or what have you. So I think that's why he goes right not to the source of the questions, but to the couples and the singles that are really in question. Marriage has never been given to parents for distribution, nor the Nazarite system. There are only a handful of arranged marriages and Nazaritism in Scripture. There's only a handful. I mean, if, you, if you're semi-familiar with Scripture, especially the Old Testament, you know you're probably thinking of maybe one or two right now where there isn't much more than one or two. Right? So, so when you have something in Scripture that, and you look at it and you go, wow, I can't believe that, that maybe this mother devoted her child to that when, you know, he's a little child or whatever. And you see maybe one or two instances of that, maybe three at most in Scripture. So what's unwise is to see that and say, we need to now build an entire tradition on that. Or with arranged marriage. I think I can think of one example of arranged marriage, and that would be Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis 24. And the decision for them really wasn't a decision. It was all about Abraham trying to find a wife for his son, not among like the Canaanite women, but among his own people. And the kid was already of marriageable age. So this is not, that's not even a, an arranged marriage from birth, which is what we typically see. But you had Isaac and Rebekah. That was kind of arranged in Genesis 24. And I'm sure you could probably come up with another example or two. That's fine. But, you know, you really want to go out on a limb and build a whole tradition on that? And I can think of maybe two examples of involuntary Nazaritism. I was reading a commentary, and they said, well, Jesus, he was a Nazarite. He was the true Nazarite, you know, in, not from Nazareth, but in the terms of that tradition. And, and no, he wasn't. He drank wine. You can't drink wine as a Nazarite. You abstain from that and shaving your head and marriage and all that. There were things that Jesus abstained from, but we see him drinking wine at weddings and these sorts of things. We never see him as a drunkard, as the Pharisees said. He was not a Nazarite, not in the truest sense, according to the Old Testament. So I, I think I see maybe two examples of Nazaritism or arranged Nazaritism. Samson, who clearly did not live that out. Thank you, Delilah. And then one who did live it out, John the Baptist, he was a Nazarite from birth. He got a command. His parents got a command from God that no razor would touch his head. He wouldn't touch the booze and all that. He would just be a prophet for the Lord, and that's it. You can read about those examples in Judges 13, uh, 3 to 5, and obviously in a gospel for John the Baptist, Luke 1, 13 to 17. And another thing that I discovered very interestingly, because, again, arranged marriage and Nazaritism pretty common in the Corinthian church Speaking of Nazaritism, Nazaritism was actually intended to be voluntary, as in a mature man or woman of God would volunteer for it, not have it foisted on them at birth. And it's actually applicable, and some people don't know this, I know my, my wife and I were talking about this, it's applicable to both men and women. A man could take a Nazarite vow and live that out, or a woman could. And if you don't believe me, go read number 6-2. So... Nazaritism, few and far between examples, only a couple at birth, and there were special circumstances surrounding that. Arranged marriage, a few examples of that. Point being, they are in the Old Testament, but try to build an entire tradition on them, especially in a new covenant, New Testament world where we're it's all about grace and following Jesus, and we're not under old covenant tenets anymore in that way. It's just thoroughly unwise, and yet that's exactly what you have playing out in the Corinthian church. Dads making decisions for their kids, sometimes when the kids were babies. These fathers were not really following the Old Testament because it doesn't establish these things as normal practices. Imagine coming of age and having zero desire to get married, but your dad comes along and says, son, you have to marry her. It was decided for you when you were a baby. Hmm. Just imagine. Or, for you gals, 
Imagine coming of age and maybe feeling a little bit of that burning passion in you, right? You know, like you want to have a spouse and you want to have a context for sex and these sorts of things. It's in a great many of us. The majority of people have this. Just imagine coming of age and feeling some of that burning passion in you and your dad comes along and says, daughter, you have to stay single and celibate your whole life because I made a vow to God for you when you were a baby. That's what we have. How fun would that be? I guess I'm going to have to find a way to curb this passion. So according to J. Mac, John MacArthur, and other what I would consider trustworthy theologians, scholars, commentarians, this appears to be the backdrop of our passage. This appears to be the context. And now you can see how there's a happy marriage between ESV rendering and NASB rendering. And I think that's the best way to hold it. The fathers were acting like these traditions were biblical and they were enforcing them. And these young men and women who were impacted by this had no say in the matter, no choice. And what Paul seems to be most, this is like the longest introduction I've ever done in a sermon. What, right? It's like, are you going to get to the text? Yeah, in an hour. What Paul seems to be, we're almost there, what Paul seems to be most interested in doing here is empowering the unmarried to make their own decisions. That's why he addresses them in the text rather than the controlling, and I would have to say, meddlesome fathers who had actually originally sent the questions. So first, his objective is to empower those who are being impacted. Second to that, Paul wanted to educate these fathers, and what he's trying to educate them on here, that man-made traditions do not trump scripture. They don't. Marriage and singleness are both good. He's been saying that in chapter 7 over and over and over. But here's what he's going to say here now to these fathers essentially and to the couples that are impacted. The decision to get married or to stay single, it is in the hands of couples and individuals, not in the hands of parents. This is his objective, I think, in this text. And it's what we're going to look at. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. Our text is chapter 7, verses 36 to 40. You're probably already there because it's been burning a hole in the screen. <laughs> the TV's like, can you switch? Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our third point. So remember, we got four points. We've done two. Now we're on number three. This is what Paul is saying. Marriage is not obligatory even when it is arranged. Marriage is not obligatory even when it is, it is arranged, okay? Meaning if somebody arranges a marriage for you, you don't have to follow through with it. It's not binding because it's arranged. In that mindset, the Corinthian mindset, it's binding. That's why the fathers are all twisted. And Paul says this, in his own unique, amazing way, Holy Spirit-inspired, right? Incredible. He says it in verses 36 to 38. I'll read that whole section. It's a big one. And then kind of unpack it afterwards. And this is what he says. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. And then 38, so then, he who marries his betrothed does well, he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Stop there. Now, at first glance, it looks like this is just another exhortation or piece of advice to engaged couples, but it, like we've talked about threading all that introduction into it in context. It's way broader than that. It's more profound and deeper than just here's some more advice to you guys and gals that are thinking about getting married. The first thing we notice is to whom Paul addresses or in whom or is whom he addresses. Like I said a moment ago, it's not the controlling fathers. They're the ones who ask the question, but he's not addressing them here. He addresses the betrothed. He's going right to the source, the people that are being impacted by these parental decisions. And if we look even more carefully, we see that the apostle was even more specific than that. It's not just the betrothed, but it's his betrothed. What does that mean? It means he's talking to the male fiancés. Why is he talking to the male fiancés? Because they will be the heads of the households. 
It's not that they're the boss, but in God's order of things, that's where the buck stops initially. That's who you make your appeal to. You address husbands first or potential husbands or fiancés, the men in the relationship. They're going to be the heads of the household. So he's laying this at their feet initially here. And what I see here is God's leadership structure for the home. That's what you see. It's not a scarce doctrine. It's not, um, you know, an ambiguous sort of flimsy whatever. It's so clear in Scripture. It's God's design for the household, God's design for the church. It's just threaded everywhere through Scripture. And we pick a couple of verses in, you know, like 1 Tim or Titus, and we say, there it is, but it's questionable. I think women ought to be elders and all that. It's everywhere. It's not just in those texts. It's threaded through Scripture. Point being, men are to lead. That doesn't mean that all men do lead. It's just that biblically, men are to lead at home and in the church. We see it right here. He's addressing the males, heads of the household. Of course, there's a plethora or bazillion scriptures that speak to this. I like 1 Corinthians 11, 3, and obviously 1 Tim 3, 2, husband of one wife. That would be the church leadership, husband. I think that means wife, husband. I think that means woman, husband. I just don't, don't really understand. I'm trying to get my mind around. Some read this and they go, I think it means the opposite. Not, not, not trying to bolster up the men here. Men, including me, fail at times. I get it. You women are thinking, yeah, but sometimes women would do a better job. Well, maybe sometimes they probably would, but it's not what God called you to. But again, we see it here. It's, it's male headship. He's addressing the guys. And what Paul says to the male fiancés is really remarkable. Clearly, after reading this paragraph, it's not just a straightforward yes or no answer, right? You know, no, you don't have to get married, or yes, you don't. I mean, it is kind of, but not really. There's an explanation here. And I think that rather than giving yes or no short answers, an explanation is better, and it's meant to empower so that these young adults can make their own decisions. He tells the men that the, and th this is what's really remarkable as well as how he tells them, but he tells the men that the deciding factor for marriage, and you could even include singleness, it's not with the parents, it's not with the parents, it's not with arrangement, but it's actually in the couple's own, it's in their own positions, how they feel about the matter. If a man had been arranged for marriage, the decision to follow through was ultimately up to him, even if he had been arranged, is what Paul is saying. And if he found it, Paul says, if he finds it, if he were arranged, and let's say he's in the situation, right, and even though the arrangement's there and he's in it, but really ultimately the decision's up to him, but if he finds it difficult, Paul says, to keep the relationship pure because his passions are strong, that's his position, then it's okay for him to do as he wishes and marry. And it's no sin, Paul says. So Paul says, even in the context of an arranged marriage, the decision is up to him. He doesn't have to follow through with it because it was arranged. But if he loves her and they both love Christ and he's been thinking about it and he's got these passions and it's hard to keep those things in check, especially when they're around each other, maybe they just can't keep their hands off each other, which they need to have the Jesus rule. He's right there. Back off. If he can't do that, he doesn't have that level of self-control, then it's okay for him to go ahead and marry, not because his parents tell him so, but because his biology tells him so. Because your position in your biology will play into this because that's going to tell you how God has wired you. So that's ultimately what he's saying. And likewise, the same rule was to be applied to the non-betrothed or regular single guys and gals, including those who were arranged for lifelong celibacy, lifelong singleness. The deciding factor for that group is exactly the same. It's not up to the parents. It's up to them. Right? The, the choice was to be his or hers and based entirely on the same deciding factor. If uh, an arranged pseudo, because I call it pseudo, Nazarite man, one who's been pledged to live out the celibacy and all that, if this particular guy who's been pledged for this, even since birth, 
If that's what his parents did for him, praise the Lord. If they did that for him, but he burns with passion and has difficulty exercising self-control. Remember 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, that he should find a spouse and get married. Not because it was arranged for him to be single his whole life, but because his biology has a particular bent and leaning, and it would be better for that man who was even pledged to these things. Think of Samson, who was pledged, couldn't keep away from the gals. And that's not a positive example, by the way, with Samson. But point being, it should be up to the young adults and up to their own biology. If you have those passions, regardless of what your parents say, you should be able to get married. If you don't have them, regardless of what your parents are saying, you should be able to abstain and stay single. Well, it doesn't matter. You were arranged to be married to Fred. Ugh. That's his point here. The choice is theirs. Marriage was wisely created by God, really, to meet the specific needs of individuals, among other reasons. God determined that it was not good for Adam to be alone. In fact, he determined this for Adam before Adam figured it out. But God determined that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. By the way, that's not a mistake by God. God knew this, and that's just anthropomorphic language to help us relate to God. But God creates Adam with a plan to create a wife for him all along. There's no surprise there. He doesn't look at Adam and go, well, he doesn't do good as a single guy. He knew this from the beginning, but it does state it in anthropomorphic language that it wasn't good for him to be alone. He gives him eight billion animals to look at, maybe find a companion. The closest he gets is a chimpanzee. He recognized, what, what does God do? He recognized Adam's need for human companionship. And by the way, this was before the fall Adam has a particular need that he just can't seem to be met on Adam's side by any of the animal kingdom, right? God puts Adam to sleep, pulls out a rib. Really, it means side in Hebrew, makes him a helper. He's got an awesome wife now. Well, she was kind of like Job's wife in a way later on, but she was good at first. Genesis 2, 18 to 22. What happens when Adam first lays eyes on his wife. What does he say? He says, this at last, the search is over is what he's saying. There was a need before the fall in this man. At last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me out of a man. Genesis 2.23. So in God's original first marriage, he joins a man and woman together, and he creates for man something to meet a real, deep, profound need. And, and you know, now you think of arranged marriage. How do you even know your kids will have those needs? Do we not understand that God wires some with a gift of celibacy and singleness? See, you don't take those things into consideration when you start making decisions for your kids long before they can make any decisions. That's the point. So... Parents and man-made traditions were never to be the deciding factor for marriage. That's not what we see playing out in Genesis, although the original parent, the OG parent, God, made a decision for Adam. So you could say that. Different motive, different reason. I would say that marriage has always been based on the specific needs of individuals. Yes, there's more reasons for marriage. The couple emulate Christ and his church, I get it, I know that. I'm not limiting it to that. I'm just saying that marriage has really always been about individual needs and desires and passions. That's been God's design and the scriptural pattern since the beginning, not to have parents arrange these things. It's always been between God and a man and a woman, not between God, man, woman, and the parents. In fact, the first thing you see with the parents is that they leave the picture once the marriage is consummated, he shall leave his parents' home and cleave to his wife. Parents leave the picture. They become grandparents, a real blessing, but they're not, it's not at the same level. Their involvement is not at the same level. 
One of the things I, I like about being a wedding DJ is the father-daughter dances and the mother-son dances because what we don't realize is those things are really, they picture a rite of passage. The dad is having his last dance with his daughter as he passes her along. Kind of like when he walks down the aisle and hands her over to the husband. It's kind of the same thing. This is our last dance together as I'll always be your dad, but not in the same way. And they have this one final celebratory tearful dance, and then that's it. And then she's gone, and then an hour later she's all, you know, it's like, oh, thank God I got that out of the way, because I don't even know what that is. She's running a jackhammer on the dance floor, you know, right? And it's the same thing with dads, dads and daughters and, and moms and sons. It's a rite of passage. See, the relationship changes. And what that implies is that the relationship should not have been based on parental decisions to begin with. Although I would say it's very wise for a godly parent to help their Christian son to find a good wife, you know. But, I mean, heaven forbid, you know, here's one right here and Christian mingle. Look at this one, Jimmy. It's like, get out of there. <laughs> go, go, back to, go back to Facebook. Well, don't go to that either, but... Parents and man-made traditions were, they never were intended or designed to be the deciding factor. Uh, I like what Thomas Schreiner wrote. He says, whether one should marry or remain single is a personal decision, which is not mandated by an outside authority. Yeah, that's God's design. Yes, there are a few arranged marriages in the scripture. Yes, there's a few arranged Nazarite vows and things, but that's, that's not the norm Man, heaven forbid we should build a whole tradition on that. Paul flips his example in verse 37. This time he uses a, a, a man and, uh, who was arranged for marriage but doesn't actually burn with passion. If he is, he says, firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, like I don't have those marital needs, but having his desires under control, he can control his desires, those passions and has determined in his heart just to, you know, maybe stay betrothed to her or stay friends or whatever, what does Paul say? He will do well. He will do even better, I think he says. So again, the deciding factor is not the parents nor the arrangement, nor is it betrothment. It has to do with his needs. It has to do with her needs. If passions aren't present or if they are under control, he doesn't have to follow through with anything and get married. In fact, even if those things aren't under control, he's still not obligated to get married, but I think it would be wise because that's an argument that Paul has made through this whole chapter. It's better to be married than to burn with passions because passions lead to fornication and lots of sexual sin, which is not good. will strain the relationship between that person and the Lord. Point being, you know, if your passions are under control, he doesn't have to get married or anything like that. He can, they can, he can stay single. He can be friends with her, lifelong friends. They can even keep the betrothment in place if they want and be really, really super close friends, right? The non-sexually active friends, right? You know, friends without those ridiculous benefits as our culture says now. Men and women can actually, if they're both gifted with singleness, they can be friends like this. It's astounding and we just don't think that way anymore because we live in a sexually charged culture. But they could be super close friends, lifelong celibate companions, a tight-knit gospel-spreading team. They can do that. They don't have to follow through. Even the parents say, you have to. This is what Paul is teaching the betrothed here. You don't have the passions. You don't, you don't have to do any of it. You can just be friends. In verse 38, Paul sends the final shot through the bow of these traditions and these meddlesome fathers. He's basically saying that the buck stops with the men and women involved, not with the parents. If a man chooses to marry, that's his prerogative. He will do well. It's up to him. How will he do well? Well, you know, marriage is a good thing. I mean, Paul's bent and leaning was towards singleness. We know that, but marriage is still a good thing. It's especially a good thing for me. I need the accountability. You men know what I'm saying if you're married. I need that accountability. I need that wife to be there to say things. You're not acting appropriately. You're not acting like a Christian. And then I have to retort, I never can act like a Christian while driving. I don't know what you expect of me. It's very hard. Or when I'm hanging TV screens. Wow. No, I mean, he will do well if he, if, you know, if he wants to go ahead and marry. It's not sinful. He'll do well. How? He'll have that close companion 
because that's I think ultimately what marriage should be about is having a BFF, a really tight, trustworthy person that you can confide in and pour out your secrets to and cry to and laugh with and get angry with and go to bed alone with and I, you know it just comes with all the benefits there. You have a proper context for sexuality because God has said between one man and one woman in the holy bonds of marriage. Maybe in that context you have some kids later on or a child or maybe multiple kids. There's just a lot of marital blessings. God packs within marriage marital blessings. Yes, it's tough, it's challenging, we've learned that, but I, as a married man of going on 25 years with her for 30 years, I think 31 years, I would argue the benefits of marriage more so than I would argue the benefits of singleness because it's my context and it's what I understand. So he says a man who wants to go ahead and get married is not sinful at all. He, he will do well. He will do well. Um, and so then he also kind of backs that up with the one who refrains from getting married. You know, if a guy refrains from going through with it, even if he's betrothed, even if he was arranged, if he refrains from getting married, that is his prerogative, not the prerogative of his parents. And Paul says he will do even better. Wow. He'll do even better than the married guy is what he's saying. And I'm like, hey, Paul, you better watch it. But after reading this chapter, I kind of understand. How will he do even better? What were Paul's first two points? Marriage can increase distress during distressing times, right? It does, especially in their context where you have the threat of the sword at all times. And secondly, what was the second point? Marriage can negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work. It just, it can bog him down with distractions and take up his resources. It, it, it can have a major impact on this guy spiritually in terms of how he devotes himself to the Lord and to the Lord's work. But I would come back around and say it can also benefit him hugely because marriage is a forge where God hammers out sanctification. I would not be the man that I am today, which still falls way short of what I want to be, right? I'm like Newton. I'm not where I am or want to be, but I'm not what I was. This is what Newton's quote, John Newton's quote is beautiful, right? But marriage, it's because of the context of marriage that I am who I am, that God has used Rachel as a constant axe to chop down the tree of Phil Baker. That's why we call him a battle axe. Amen. No, God has done this. He has used her, and I think he's used me in her life, probably less so. <laughs> but the decision is his. It's hers. It's not, you're going to do this, Jimmy. You know, it's like, no, that's not, that's not the scriptural way. That's what he's arguing for here. And we would, we would say that the unmarried man, he'll do even better because he's not subjected to all those stresses that marriage brings. He's not subjected to the same distractions. He's got distractions, but he doesn't have marital distractions. He's got heartaches, but he doesn't have some of the marital heartaches, right? He will do even better because he doesn't have to deal with those things. That's Paul's point. Paul doesn't say why, but he has said why in the previous sections. He doesn't say why here, I should say. Paul's response to the father's questions and Third argument for singleness is marriage is not obligatory even when it is arranged. The, 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 whoever it's been arranged for, and we would even include into that the singleness, if it's been arranged for the person, it's not obligatory because arranging these things is not the biblical mode. People making their own decisions is the biblical mode between them and the Lord and the couple or whomever. That's the point. They could stay single. These couples that he's writing to, right, that are, have been pledged to marriage or pledged to Nazaritism, they could stay single and enjoy all the freedom and blessings that come with singleness. We know there are many. Uh, the traditions that were foisted on them were not binding because they're not scriptural. They're not the scriptural norm, at least. And likewise, those who were being forced to live out involuntary Nazarite vows of singleness and celibacy, they could go ahead. Paul's saying, you can go ahead and find a spouse. The decision was to be ultimately with the individuals, not with the controlling fathers. That's his point. And I will say this, the only thing that is actually binding in this whole discussion is marriage itself. That's what's binding. That's the point that he'll seek to make in the next point. The only thing that is binding is not the arrangement or a Nazarite vow that was foisted on somebody. What is actually binding is marriage itself.
arrangement, listen, listen carefully, arrangement, which is really not in our context, I guess it could happen, but it doesn't, arrangement, dating, courtship, betrothal, which is engagement, setting a wedding date, renting a venue, ordering the food, cake, drinks, dresses and tuxes, hiring a DJ, praise the Lord, more money, getting a florist, getting the linens, getting everything, paying for the entire wedding in full long before wedding day, not binding, not binding. And people have a ball rolling mentality today that, well, we've got all these things in place, so I got to follow through with it. Are you kidding me? Losing, losing money on a wedding will cost far less than a bad marriage. There is nothing that should get in the way of that. You see, we don't follow arrangement today like they did in the first century, but we do in our own way because once the ball's rolling now, Jimmy and Susie have to follow through with it. No, they don't. No, they don't. It is very unwise to pressure and push our children or whomever to go ahead and follow through with it because the ball is rolling. It is better to lose money on a DJ. By the way, I, you will lose because I don't give deposits back. It is better to lose $250 than to yoke two people together that shouldn't even be married. And you find that out real quickly by the way they treat each other. You see, what happens is couples put on a show when they're in the courtship phase. Oh, they, it's just like when people first visit the church, you know, they act a certain way and you're like, oh man, these people are going to be great. I love Josie and Paul, you know, and then about six months later, you're like, oh, I don't know. Because after they get comfortable, that's when they begin to show who they really are. Same thing with dating. Guys will go to any length to get a gal. I'll attend your church and they'll go for years if they have to. But once the knot is tied, might become a different guy. And you realize, ooh, well, the ball was rolling, so we had to follow through with that. No, don't think of marriage as rolling balls. Don't ever think of it like that. It's that serious. It is. Paul is going to talk about in his next point how serious it is. But I would say don't. Approach this with a ball rolling mentality. Let people make their own decisions. And if they feel like, and I've I actually, I've been bothered by this in the past, but after studying this week, I feel a lot better about it. But I've had, in my years of being a DJ, I've had a lot of cancellations. And every time I'm like, oh, darn it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad they canceled because they didn't follow through with something. Oh, I found out he was cheating. Or I found out she was cheating. Or I just figured out that after, you know, we started going through premarital, we really don't like each other. So we canceled it. I'm like, well, I lost $700. No. Thank God somebody's using their head here. You don't have to go through with this. If your parents are telling you you have to go through it, no. It's not up to them. If the culture tells you you have to go through it, no. It's not up to them. But I would say this. However, if the passions are there and both love Jesus and love each other, get married. But don't forget to consider the times and count the cost. Let's move to our fourth and final point. Amen? Number four, marriage is binding until death. We see this in 39 to 40. Mm. That right there is absolutely true and should be one of the best, best, absolute best and most effective deterrents on two people yoking themselves for the wrong reasons. That point is not something, they'll acknowledge it right from the altar when they get married, but they don't have any intention of living that out because the moment that she or he doesn't make me happy anymore, bye-bye. <laughs> no, 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 no. He expresses this point in verses 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. I just drop the mic, walk off stage. But if her husband dies... All right, he, he, he passes away. She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And he says this in the last verse, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And <laughs> that's hilarious, but we'll get to it. Paul now focuses on the permanency of the marriage relationship. The relationship is not permanent in the sense of it being eternal. It doesn't transfer off into heaven. It doesn't come into the kingdom of Christ. It's not permanent in that regard. He's talking about how it's permanent 
in the life. And it's lifelong is what he's saying. It is binding as long as both partners are alive. Now, we, we have already studied and we know that sexual immorality and these things can, there's, you could get out of a marriage because of that or because of potential abandonment. We're not arguing for any of that. But the, the baseline thought as anyone considers marriage is, is that I have to be with her until either one of us die. And she has to be under the same mentality and not back that up with, if he keeps messing with me, he'll die real early and then I can get out of this. Don't think like that. He is focusing on the permanency of marriage. Although Christians, even those who have been given the gift of singleness from God, they are still free to get married. It doesn't mean like, oh, you've given me, Lord, the Lord has given me the gift of celibacy and singleness. I don't burn with the passion like others. You're not sinning against him if you don't live out that gift anymore and get married. There's nothing wrong with that. You might not have strong sexual impulses right now at this stage in your life, but in five years you might. Who knows? But Christians with the gift of singleness, they're free to get married. But they should keep in mind, as MacArthur says, that they are bound for the rest of their lives unless their spouse passes away, which is, as MacArthur says, often well into old age, past the time of being most productive in their service to the Lord. It's just harder to serve the Lord as you get older and older and older and older. And really, that's what this has been all about, why Paul has argued for singleness, because you can really have a ministry to the Lord that just is not impeded or impacted by a family. If the partner passes away, Paul says the believer is free to marry as long as that new partner is a Christian, right? He says, only in the Lord. You, you don't, you know, you don't, I was married to a Christian the first time. I want to get remarried. Now I'm marrying an unbeliever. No. Paul says it must be another believer because we don't want to enter into an unequally yoked covenant with somebody. Really what he's doing here is aiming his advice at widows and widowers, men and women who have lost their spouses. But notice how Paul says, I love how he says it. He says that remarriage is not always ideal for the gals in verse 40. He doesn't say the men, for the gals. In his judgment or in accordance with his own apostolic advice, he says a widow will be happier if she remains as she is. A widow will remain happier if she remains as she is. Single. Right? Or as a widow. Now, he gives no specific reasons for this. Right? He doesn't say why they'll be happier. But I think it has to do with that wonderful passage in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, where wives are commanded to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. You know, the whole headship deal. Can we be honest here, ladies, that that's just really not an easy thing to do at times? Hmm? Did you know that in your fallen nature, gals, that you're predisposed to not do that? Did you know that you're under a curse to not want to do that? That you will actually, God cursed Eve in Genesis 3 in such a way that her desire will not be what her husband wants. She will be because of the curse and because of the fall, she will be, in a sense, a rebel against male authority. And that will happen in marriage. I'm not beating up on the gals. Guys are boneheads, trust me. I'm one. I'm, I'm the leader of the bonehead team. Right? So you just stop and think about what Paul is saying. I think she'll be happier if she remains as she is. Why? Well, let's create a scenario. All right? Susie just spent 25 years married to Jason. Has learned through the 25 years how he is, has worked in the Lord's strength to shape him, has figured out how she can submit and do all these things, and now he's gone, and now she's thinking about marrying Barry and has to start all over. Hmm, that sounds fun, doesn't it, women? Hmm? I just got my husband to where I want him. He's now with the Lord. Now I got to start over. And he sure seems to be Mr. Darcy. He sure seems to be a knight in shining armor. But something changed after we said I do. And now I have found that he is kind of a hard man. 
and I find it even more difficult to submit to a hard man. It was much easier to do it with the last guy. He was wonderful. But this guy, did he put on a facade? And now he's a hard man? Think. I think that's what Paul means. She'll be happier if she stays as she is. Because she doesn't have to retrain a new guy. She doesn't have to figure out how to submit to him. And you know what? Yeah, the Bible says submit to him. It doesn't say figure it out. Well, you know what? Sorry. Gals, I'm, I'm with you. You've got to figure it out because it's not easy. Let me ask you this. Is it easier for, for you gals who are married or were married? You're a widow. We love you. Is it easier for you to submit to a man who lives out his part of the deal, to love his wife as Christ loves the church? Is it, would it be easier in that context to do that? Or would it be easier to submit to him if he's a hard man and he doesn't treat you very well and he's insensitive and he's mean? It is going to be more difficult to submit to a man who acts ungodly than one who does. A Christ-like man is easier to submit to. It's just the way it works. Therefore, it might be a happier scenario for her to remain as she is. Now, Paul's advice would be to her if she has those passions, because if you've been married for any length of time, you know, you've been sexual and you know what that's like. You know what that feels like. You've enjoyed that. And maybe you have those passions and it's like, well, I don't think it's wise for me to be single for too long. Okay. Okay. He's not saying don't do anything here. Maybe being in the context of a marriage will make you happier. It could. He's just saying, according to my estimation, <laughs> speaking as if he had been married before and was widowed or something, because that's how he acts, but I don't think he ever was. I think he was a Nazarite in a way. He took vows and had to go to Jerusalem to fulfill them, but I know they were purity vows. But in any case, I mean, the guy seems to have his finger on the pulse of this really well. He understands. But it could be that marriage would make the widow happier because she has the context for sexuality. She has the companionship that she misses. Maybe she's the kind of gal that's just so uber godly she could somehow submit to a Hitler-like guy. There's some gals out there that are just so soft-spirited and gentle. It's like, yeah, I know he's the way he is. He's a hard man, but I take my calling very seriously. And I think I will be winsome if I can be submissive and gentle, and, right? There's those unique gals that are out there. I think Paul, you know, Paul recognizes a few of them at the end of one of his epistles, maybe Romans. Yeah, those are a unique, special gal. But in any case, I, what, Rachel and I talk about this, you know, if she passes away, she's always like, I know you get married quick. <laughs> okay, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Then after studying chapter 7, singleness looks pretty good. <laughs> But she says often, I don't think I'd get remarried. And I go, is it because it was hard to train me? Yeah, kind of. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, Brenda widowed how many years ago? Eight, nine, ten years ago? Eleven years ago. And that, that is insane because when I first met you, you were going through that. And you and I have had this conversation. It's like, what do you think? You go, you know, you know what? I'm fine how I am. I have my relationship with Christ. I still love my husband. And that's what... I want to do. Now, that's hard for me to get my mind around as a married man, but I'm also not a woman, and I don't know your relationship. It was pretty good, you know, so I can understand what you're doing. Hey, guess what? Paul's saying, yeah, Brenda. <laughs> he is. And now I have to say, yeah, Brenda, because I understand what he's saying. But maybe that's, maybe that's how it pans out. Submission is going to be tough. It's always tough no matter what, but it's really tough in a tough marriage. And, and I don't think that we usually classify tough marriages as happy marriages, do we? No. They're not marriages that flood us with joy and all that. It's, it, you, we feel like we're in the battle of the bulge. I'm bulging all the time and I'm always battling her. I mean, this is what a tough marriage feels like. So to you, Brenda, and to anyone else who's had to go through these very difficult things, you might be happier if you remain single. That's Paul's apostolic advice, and I think it is good. I think it's good because it makes sense. Notice what he wrote in the second half of verse 40. <laughs> I love this guy. This guy is like the Jerry Seinfeld of the New Testament. Just, you know, without all the goofiness, but with the good sarcastic humor. 
He is just, he's hilarious. He could have had a, he could have done improv. Second half of verse 40, and I think that I have the Spirit of God, or I too have the Spirit of God. This is brilliant. It is pure sarcasm. The group that advocated for singleness, because you had this group in the church, you know, and, and half of them were married, which made no sense. It's like, why are you advocating for singleness and celibacy? You're married to Josie. I don't know. I think it's the thing to do. But you had these groups in the church, one that was, you know, we're the single and celibacy camp, right? You know, going up and down with a flag, woo! And then you had the marriage camp, we're the marriage camp. You know, you had these two groups and they were competing and battling each other. And both were claiming to be coming from a position of wisdom, boasting that they had the Holy Spirit. Well, you need to listen to us because we have the Holy Spirit and our wisdom is tried and true. And that's, that's why Paul is saying what he says here. He is saying, I keep hearing about all this great wisdom, how it's rock solid in this church. Wow! Because you have the Spirit of God. This is amazing because you know what? Like you, I too have the Spirit of God. Bear in mind when he uses this sarcasm, everything that he has said in chapter 7 has been a contradiction of those two groups. Hmm. Feel the weight of that. He has made his arguments against them, and now he's saying, yeah, I have the Spirit of God too. Whew. And we mustn't forget that throughout this chapter, he was speaking, even though we know he gave apostolic advice, and we think, well, that doesn't have the weight. Hold on. Throughout this chapter, even in the sections where he's giving apostolic advice, he is speaking as what? One called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. The whole book starts with that. This is an apostle. So his apostolic advice has weight. And not only that, he is speaking as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He says that in the middle of issuing his apostolic advice. Verse 25 of chapter 7. So just, well, you got all this wisdom and you're coming up with these ideas. Well, I got it too. And he's saying that at the end of a colossal correction to both camps. I think that of the three involved, Paul was the one with the spirit and the wisdom. Not those two goofball groups that were, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? How, how do we as Christians get this tunnel vision on these things and that's, that's my thing? And then we find that it's just a tradition. So there you have it. There you have it. There's Paul's apostolic advice to the betrothed. I want to recap real quick. Let me put that recap slide up. There you go. He makes a four. This is really interesting. It's something I realized as we wrap up. We know that he's made a fourfold argument. He's said a lot of things, but really, if you boil it down, it's a fourfold argument for singleness, right? Number one, marriage can increase distress during distressing times, verses 25 to 28a. We learned that. That was a poignant uh, section. All of them were. I always say, this one's my favorite. Nope, the next one's my favorite. Number two, marriage can negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work. We learned about that, how that happens. Verses 28b to 35. Today, we got the other two. Marriage is not obligatory, even when it is arranged. Verses 36 to 38. These couples that were arranged and all that, they could get out of it and be single. So that in and of itself is an argument for singleness. And then fourthly, marriage is binding until death. Verses 39 to 40. It is binding till death. What do we say in our vows? Till death do us part. We need to take this super seriously. We do. Some marriages are so tumultuous that one in the marriage prays for death. I, I think it's the only way I can get out of this thing. And it's been horrible because everything changed after wedding day. No, it's for life until that spouse passes away. So remember that. And I would say that I didn't realize this until the other day, but Paul included a one-fold argument for getting married in chapter 7. Put it up on the screen. So he's got a four-fold for being single. He's got a one-fold for getting married. What does it say? 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He said that, that's ex that is verse 9 quoted verbatim, and he said the same thing in a different way in verse 36. So, it's four points against one, isn't it? That illustrates Paul's preference for singleness, doesn't it? We know what he preferred. In fact, I would go out and say that he celebrates the single life in chapter 7. He does. He celebrates it. He's rejoicing in, in his singleness and in what he's been able to accomplish for the Lord without having to worry about a spouse and a family and all that. He celebrates it. And I believe Paul was entitled to do so as a single guy faithfully serving the Lord. I think he has every right to express his preference. But we know that that's not the only reason why he expressed this stuff here. It was to be helpful. He understood the value of singleness just as married, uh, very, very many married couples understand the value of marriage. Paul understood his camp, if there is a camp, very well as a single guy. Maybe not as well as us marrieds. We understand our camp. Hopefully we understand our camp. But I would say, regardless of his preferences, regardless of his four versus one, his apostolic advice is totally solid, totally applicable. Singles and marrieds alike should pay close attention to what Paul wrote in chapter 7. Amen. That is going to become part of my premarital counseling from now on. I am going to work feverishly to break that couple up. <laughs> if I can't do it, maybe they should get married. I'm serious. I've got a different outlook on marriage now because of this chapter. If that's the thing that I walk away with, glory to God. It's not that I don't want people to get married. I do, but I want to be as thorough and as clear as Scripture is and help people understand what they're getting themselves involved with. So that's that. Last thing, with all of this talk of singleness and marriage, I want to close with a reminder that every believer, regardless of their earthly marital status, is betrothed to Christ and presented to him as a pure virgin. This is exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Isn't that interesting? And we have to admit, and I'm okay with this kind of arranged marriage, this arrangement, you know, being betrothed to Christ, being presented to him, this arrangement was made for us in eternity past by our merciful, all-wise, all-loving Heavenly Father, Ephesians 1, 4. We were predestined to the adoption. That's an arranged marriage I can get behind. Amen? We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been given to Christ as his splendorous bride. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. He is our bridegroom. And that's not even weird when you begin to understand. Like for guys, it's weird to have a bridegroom. It's not when you understand that it's a spiritual thing. He is our bridegroom, John 3, 29, forever and ever and ever. And this, my family, my brethren, my friends, my beloved, this should motivate us to put sin to death and serve our beloved with a capital B, Jesus, with sincerity and pure devotion as we go about our daily lives. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. Amen?